I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. I left my marker in Psalm 133 last Sunday, so I'm going to go hunting. Here we are. So I invite you to stand and we'll read the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3 together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. No pressure. Lord, thank you for your word. We realize the high bar you set for us, the high bar you set for leaders, as the word here says, overseers, translated in other ways, bishops and pastors. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand the calling as a church family to pray for those in leadership over us. And as we look at these other commitments today beyond just this one, that you would hold us accountable to your word and that through it, we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, no pressure, right? First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, starts out in a commitment that says, I will pray for my church leaders. But I got a little personal story, first of all, to start out, and it may take a little bit. February 23rd, 1997, I uh, stepped behind a lectern, a pulpit, for the first time as a 19-year-old music student leading music at a small Southern Baptist church in eastern New Mexico. Um, I could count on one hand the number of times I had led worship at that point in my life. I was not very old, right? 19 years old. Uh, and it was less than five times I had been there. But God called me to that job at that moment in my life, and I was kind of surprised, to be perfectly honest. But there were several different things about me at that point, and one of those things was I had hair. <laughs> Not only did I have hair, I had a lot of hair. I know. Everybody stops laughing then and go, really? I had a mop of blonde hair. It looked a lot like Caitlin's, not quite that long. But... Um, not anywhere near that long, honestly. But as a college student, as a broke college student, I was always looking for a haircut, right? And, uh, but anyway, this church was very, very, uh, what's the word, patient with college students because they knew they could get college students to come in and do some of the things that they didn't know how to do. But it was one of their ministries was to give uh, people called to ministry their first job. So they put up with a lot. They put up with a lot of uh, awkward moments. Uh, the first Easter, I, I, uh, I, I led music there. I had this idea that everybody knew every song in the hymnal. So I did every Easter hymn. And a couple of ladies in the choir told me about it. I'd never heard any of those songs. I was like, 
I don't know. I, you know, I had to learn some things along the way. I went away that summer. I'd heard, I met a, a, a couple in the church uh, named um, Wendell and Cecile. And I'd heard that Wendell was a barber. But I didn't know where. I wasn't smart enough to ask. Right? Um, and plus, he was an old guy and I was a kid. So I got a couple more haircuts. I spent that summer in Utah and Idaho on summer missions, came back, was still working in that church, doing some youth ministry, things like that. But I happened to go to the, this particular barbershop, and it was the barbershop that Wendell owned. And I was like, that's cool. I finally know where Wendell works. And I, I didn't know he owned the barbershop. I didn't really know that much about him at all. I'd only worked in that church really a couple of months. And so uh, I got to know, and, and he gave me a haircut. And then at the end of it, he said, it's on the house. And I thought, this is cool. I got me free haircuts. And then I went back the next time. He didn't charge me. But I got exactly the same haircut. And then I went back a third time. He didn't charge me. And I asked him if he could do something a little different with my hair. I got exactly the same haircut. For three years, I could go to Wendell anytime I wanted to, and he gave me exactly the same haircut. He had a very specific thought for what that kid in leading music in his church ought to look like. Or working in his church, I wouldn't always lead music, but... Anyway, he was very generous. He and his wife were very involved in youth ministry, and they had their different ideas about different kinds of things. But my last, um, my last haircut after I graduated from college, Allison and I were about to get married. He told me, he knew I had gotten a teaching job, and we were sticking around because uh, Allison had to go through school. And um, the very last haircut before I got married, he whispers in my ear, and, and Wendell was deaf. He had, like, massive hearing aids, Okay. So Wendell whispering was about like this. But he thought he was whispering to me, and he said, I got you through college. That's your last freebie. <laughs> well, that's cool. So my thought was, since I have to pay for them now, he'll do what I want me to, want him to. So I got a haircut sometime that fall. I got exactly the same haircut. <laughs> Generous people, very involved in ministry, wanting to serve, wanting to give, wanting to help, but they had a very specific expectation for what that person should look like. And I heard about it along the way, too, because I was a college student, and I'd grow and shave facial hair almost weekly. You know, I had the goatee, I... For a while, I did the sideburns because it was the 90s and everybody thought we should go back to the 70s for some reason. Bright red sideburns with blonde hair. It looked awesome. <laughs> Thankfully, like two pictures exist of that era of my life. But here's the thing, is that every individual in a church has an expectation for what they for for the whoever is in leadership. And so does the Bible. And a lot of times they don't match. 
Now, I will tell you, this passage right now, guess what? There's a lot of pressure when I read that. That last phrase in there, it says, to be above reproach. That, that's a big deal. And so one of the commitments, and I am a church member, this text we're working through with, um, from Tom Rainer is, I will pray for my church leaders. And, and that means everybody. That doesn't just mean me. It means, it means Allison and Zach as they're up here leading. That means your teachers. That means our deacons. That means whoever is in charge of it. And those of you, and there are several, I've been blessed in our church to have people who have been in ministry, people who have been kids of people in ministry, and people who are in ministry now. You're all in ministry now, by the way, if you're in the body of Christ. Let's just put that as a comma. But there's something to that fishbowl, right? You have an expectation based on this, but we also have a cultural expectation. Because fast forward 12 years later, uh, 2009, I all of a sudden was under the conviction, and Allison and I have been praying through it and getting to this point in our, in our lives and ministry of, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor, I'd already been through seminary, I had the degree, I'd been ordained, I had, but I was doing music in churches, I was doing missions, I'd done college ministry work, we'd done all kinds of different things. But we both, individually and together, had to get to the point to where God laid it on our hearts to do this job. And I, I remember the moment because I had, um, we had already been serving in three different churches and and associate roles at that point. And, and I remember the moment that I got, got, went over the hump. It was the fall that my dad passed away, 2008. And I was tired of teaching. Anybody ever been there as a teacher? But I didn't really feel like that was my call, yet God had told us to grow where we were planted. That's what we were doing. That's what I was doing. Allison was doing other stuff too. I got to the point where God said, I want, to put, want you to put your resume in at this church. Not this church, but a particular church. And it was a First Baptist church. And it was an old school Eastern New Mexico First Baptist church that had the expectation of the three-piece suit from the pastor and the, you know, the you know, postcard picture family and all those kinds of things. And I, my thought was, God, I don't look good in a suit. Now, some of you would argue with that because every time I wear a jacket, somebody goes, you preaching this week? But anyway, <coughs> I had to get over myself. Almost audibly, I heard God say, I need you to be you where I put you. I'll let you think through that for a minute. That spring, I saw... Oh, that, that was kind of the moment I started getting over myself as far as that goes. That spring is when I put my resume in here. And that fall is when we moved here, that next fall. And as they would say, the rest is history. <laughs> now I've been in ministry 26 years, and more than half of that has been in this church. And so God calls us to this place, but it's not without expectations and without a certain amount of pressure with it. There is a pressure within Scripture that this person meet this goal, the ideal. 
But here's the problem. None of us can. We are all going to sin at some points. We're all going to trip up. We're all going to have frustrations. There will be moments when you get tired of me. No, shocking. But God has called us to lift each other up. Because we have all been called to such a time and such a place as we are right now. And so we need to make a commitment to pray for our church leaders because of the standard that we're called to live to. And because following here, you see that it says the qualifications, or we, we see um, really a better word for it probably, that the, the header isn't inspired, by the way. Characteristics. It's probably a better word. Bill talked about, Bill Lighty talked about that a couple of months ago with us. But characteristics that are a high bar. And we know that if we look in the life of our denomination in the last several years, we need these kinds of prayers for our leaders. Because none of us are above falling. We need the prayers. So, as a church member, as a member of the body of Christ, we should be praying for those that are in leadership in whatever role they're in. Because, yeah, there's a fishbowl. And one of the things I've been considering along the way, I mean, Allison and I determined together the call as the church called and God called us here. We had no children when this happened. Well, we had one, but she wasn't quite here yet. Our kids were born into this. They need extra prayers. Right? They need encouragement to become who they are in Christ. I've had the blessing and honor of baptizing both my kids, and that's an awesome, awesome experience. But each one of us, including them, all of us, have an individual calling from the Lord to fulfill His task in the church. And it's different in different times and different places. That's one of the reasons I use the illustration of one of our little guys getting up to, to preach. Guess what's going to happen if you're not ready? Guess how I feel every Sunday? Especially today with this passage. So pray for your leaders. That's one of the commitments we should have as the body of Christ. Because there's a lot of pressure. And the devil knows that if he can take down the one that's at the, at the front, not the one that's in charge, by the way, that's Jesus. But if he takes down the one that's at the front, it's easier to take everybody else down with him. And his job for the church, against the church, is to distract us from what our mission is. And that is to go and to make disciples. That's our calling. And if, if we have moral failure, if you have personality conflict, not that any of those things anyone is exempt from, in this flesh, it's a whole lot easier to convince the world that that's not worth listening to. So pray for those that are in charge of. That's one of the, the, the uh, commitments there. Pray for your pastor and your, our family. Pray for our Sunday leaders, 
whether they're teachers, whether they're people leading worship, whether they're people that are guarding the doors, whether they're people in the sound booth, whether they're somebody that you pick up on the way, you know what, that makes you a leader. Pray that God opens the doors for ministry and protects, protects those who are in some measure of leadership. I hesitate to say authority, but that's what the Bible says. Like I said, even when you get to verses 6 and 7, he must not be a recent convert, that kind of makes sense, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, though, here's where it really gets hairy. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. There's a, there's a character that keeps falling into this part here. That is, we have an enemy. So we need to encourage one another and bless one another and pray for one another so that we are, have a, a valid, a, an honest testimony. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for redemption. Christ has paid the price for us so that we can follow him. All right, so that's the, the there are six commitments. Uh, and so this is number four. I will pray for my church leaders, all right? Pray for all the different ways that you can help in ministry in our church. And you, one of the fascinating things when you get into like a group like we were in last night at the Beast Feast or out into the community is how many people you know that I don't. Guess who is a bigger influence in their life than I am? You are. So we are all called to be a witness for Christ. All right, the fifth commitment. I will lead my family to be healthy church members. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm not going to expound on this deeply today, but I just want you to know that, yes, there's a high requirement on pastors, but just families in general. We need to be um, mindful of what Christ has done for us and who we are in Christ. All right? Now, remember, Ephesians... I've heard a thousand sermons on Ephesians. Ephesians simply breaks itself down into three chapters on theology and three chapters on practice. Okay? And so, four, five, and six really strongly deal with the practical nature of ministry. And... This particular passage flares up some tempers. I'm not here to get that. I'm not here to get you mad at me. Okay. What we need to realize is Christ has called us together as his bride. And the picture that he wants us to look at in comparison to what that is, is our own families. That Christ loved the church to the point where he died for the church on the cross. The church is the bride of Christ, and now he calls us to this place here, verse 22. We're going to go through chapter 6, verse 4. I'm just going to read it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right. People tend to put that paragraph by itself without going on. That's it. There's a lot there, but there's actually more on the men here than there are on the ladies. 
Husbands, here we go, verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Verse uh, 1 of chapter 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All of these aspects reflect the relationship with God the Father and God the Son in the church as the bride of Christ. And this is where we are all called into this together. See, what happens, I think, a lot of times is that we we try to individualize a teaching like this. We try to make it about one particular family or one particular moment or one husband and one wife. And all those things matter. But the fact is, is that we cannot do any of these things. 1 Timothy chapter 3, what we just read. Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, what we just read now. We can't do any of these things on our own. We need help. We need to work together as the body of Christ to love and support one another in these moments. So leading our families to be healthy church members doesn't necessarily mean that, again, perfection is expected. But redemption is. We need to show honesty in our relationships. We need to live in a way that blesses Christ, that we can support one another, encourage one another. And it says in Hebrews chapter 10, all, uh, all the chapter 10, all of uh, these things, now we encourage one another, spurring one another onto love and good deeds, all the more as we see the day approaching. What is the day? In context of Hebrews 10, it is the return of Christ. The return of Christ, whenever it happens, is imminent. That is His promise, is that He is returning. And so we must love and support one another in those moments. And I would say in, in the context, and this actually broadens it beyond the, you know, we see what it says praying for our church leaders and the, the standard in which church leaders are held. We need to support everyone in our church family to this, to this bar, to this standard. That we would serve the Lord together. And a lot of times we think we're helping when we think you need to do this, 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 and this. But all that really ends up doing for any person is adding more pressure on something that they actually in themselves cannot fulfill. I'm not Jesus. And neither are you. But we have the Holy Spirit 
as a seal of his promise of his return. And his spirit dwells in the church. And we can love and encourage one another together to grow in Christ, to serve him. Again, the, the passages that are here set a very high bar. And we can't reach it. Christ did. He paid the price so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That reminds me of a verse I'm getting to now. All right. I like that verse a lot. You guys have been around a while know this. The, the sixth commitment in this book, I Am a Church Member, is I will treasure my church membership as a gift. Now, remember going back to the first week, I am a functioning church member distinguishes being a member of a church versus being a member of a country club. You pay your dues at a country club and the people that are hired serve you. In a church, it's the opposite. We come and we are a part of the body of Christ and we serve together. And so when we look at something like treasuring church membership as a gift, we have to realize that it is something that we can never have on our own. You can never obtain salvation. It is not a goal that is reachable in the flesh. It is a gift of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I cannot save ourselves. I know that goes against the Western mindset, and I say Western Hemisphere mindset, the European and American mindset of pulling up your bootstraps. I've never had boots or straps. So anyway, doing it yourself, we can't. We cannot. Because we all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our hope is because of what Christ has done. We can't make ourselves any better. Only He can do it in us. And He does that through his salvation, and ultimately in the process of sanctification. Now we're getting to probably what is my favorite verse. I've, I, I, I have some rankings of verses. This is, I keep calling this one of my favorites, so I think it keeps climbing up. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I can't save me. In Christ, I am clothed in righteousness. He has done the work for me. And so our gift is, our, our, our membership in the body of Christ, as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 comes to, and we'll come back to that in a second, is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Again, another very familiar passage, but it talks greatly about our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
I can't say I'm more saved than you. <laughs> Unless you're not saved. But that gift, again, must be received. It's sitting there waiting for you. Forgiveness is a gift. And finally, one of the greatest results of salvation is that we are now part of Christ's body. We are members of his body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we started here a couple of weeks ago. Now you are, body, you, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. All right, so those are all the different kinds of roles that we see fulfilled within the body of Christ. Guess what? That's all of us. God empowers the local church to meet ministry needs where he has placed that church. The church global, yes, it exists. But every book in the New Testament was written, every, I'm sorry, not every book in the New Testament, every one of Paul's letters to churches were to specific churches in a local context. There is everything biblical about being a part of the body of Christ, being a member. Now, as a membership, a membership in our church, we covenant together to live this out and to be accountable to one another. But one of the things I love about this particular book, I Am a Church Member, is how positive it is that everything about being in the body of Christ can be a blessing. The question is, how do we respond to the gift that we have received? To be a member in our church, the requirements are simple. First of all, you need to be saved. You need to have trusted Christ as your Savior. And the sign of that covenant together as the body of Christ is immersion baptism. If you have been baptized biblically because of your faith, not to be saved, but because you are saved, then you're eligible for membership. And we can talk about that together. And if you're willing to meet that, you know, make that covenant together, you, you can be a part of our church family. Now, we, we do take seriously the distinctive of immersion baptism. And I realize that people come from all kinds of different backgrounds with that. But that's like wearing a wedding ring. That shows that we have a commitment together under the same banner. And that covenant of baptism. And so, in that, we make all these commitments together to make much of Jesus. Because remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we, all, where we started out this morning? The devil's looking for a way to get in there. He's looking for a way to split us up. To cause division. One of the illustrations that um, is commonly used, and thankfully it's not a common issue actually uh, for me, but I've known a lot of pastors who get really, really ugly messages from people, whether they be in the mail, whether they be in 
phone call form, or whether they be in emails, or whatever. I'm thankful our church family doesn't get into that practice. And I'll say that's a, that's a good distinctive of Aberdeen. But it's easy to judge somebody else without first dealing with the plank in our own eyes. So let's work together to encourage one another to love and good deeds. First Corinthians, First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, encourage one another and build each other up. I get a song stuck in my head every time I do that. But we're here to love one another. And that is the commitment of church membership. To realize that the world will do everything it can to knock us down. And we live in a world that really wants to. I mean, you just got to look at the, a couple of things in our community in one week and realize this, this is a hard place to be. Not just Pueblo, but Earth. How can we serve one another together? So, the commitments that we make together matter. And I ask you to consider in your own heart today the commitment you have in the body of Christ to encourage one another, to build one another up, to pray for everybody around you, to recognize that beyond obligations of service, it's a gift to minister, to serve Christ together. And where do you fall on that today? What commitment do you need to make to bless Christ even more in your life? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love, your faithfulness, your goodness.